MailChimp presents. Have you ever heard of the dreaded customer? You know, it's when marketers throw their customers into one big messy group, failing to define them by their different needs or habits. It can show up when coupon codes meant for new customers are sent out to everyone, even return customers who can't use the discount. Basically, it's a mess. If you're a marketer, Intuit MailChimp can help you personalize your marketing campaigns so that you meet customers' individual needs instead of missing them. Turn customers into customers by personalizing emails and SMS based on real-time behavior data. Intuit MailChimp, the number one email marketing and automations brand. Based on competitor brands' publicly available data on worldwide numbers of customers in 2021 and 2022. SMS is available as an add-on to U.S. paid plans only. Visit MailChimp.com for details. Hello, friend. I'm Paul Jarvis, and you're listening to Call Paul. I'm the author of Company of One, a book about intentionally growing a small business. I've also been running small businesses for the last 20 or so years and I'm currently the co-founder of a small privacy-focused analytics company called Fathom Analytics. Sometimes gatecrashing looks like rethinking everything an industry holds as truth. In the restaurant industry, that means throwing out everything you know about wages, gratuities, health insurance, and even sharing financials with every staff member. As business owners, We can and are able to do this and start from absolute scratch, kind of like writing our own recipe for success. A restaurant is only as good as the employees that work there. It takes a huge team and it's not something you can really automate or that you should automate. It's a very human industry. I feel like success to me is having employees that are taken care of and that feel good about where they work. That's Bonnie Morales, owner of Kochka, where former Soviet Union food is served and sold through a Pacific Northwest lens. As if working hard to keep a restaurant open during the pandemic wasn't hard enough, she's now had to deal with the complexities of selling food from the former USSR, which is currently war-torn following the Russian invasion of Ukraine. We wanted to name the restaurant after my family in some way, and I immediately thought of a story that I would hear from my father when I was a little girl. We used to like take walks after dinner, and he'd tell me stories about my paternal grandparents because they died back in the Soviet Union, and I was born here in the States. He would always tell me stories about my grandmother during World War II. She escaped from a ghetto um, in the middle of the night with her three-month-old baby, and she at one point ended up facing a uh, town warden who was working with Nazis who accused her of being Jewish, wanted to take her in. And she persuaded him that she was not Jewish, that she's Ukrainian, uh, moving through into Russia to see her in-laws. And he wasn't convinced. And he said, how do you say Utka in Ukrainian? Utka is duck in Russian. She, of course, has no idea how to say duck in Ukrainian. I don't even think that she'd ever been to Ukraine. She's from Belarus her whole life and um, she just crossed her fingers and hoped that the word kachka which is the belarusian word for duck might be it because sometimes they do share language Um, and he ended up letting her go because it turned out that that was 
the magic word. And so that word Kochka just really always stuck with me, resonated. And I don't necessarily need other people to know that and know that story. It's just, it's important for me. So it's sort of like my mantra. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a pretty powerful story too. <laughs> Did you always want to open your own restaurant? Like, was that the, was that the plan? <laughs> <laughs> no, no sane person ever should want to open a restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> My husband and I met in restaurants. We uh, both love food and restaurants and hospitality and everything about it. It's basically all we ever talk about. But we both always said that we would never, ever want to open a restaurant of our own, that that's just a fool's errand and that how dumb people are to do that. But you do have a restaurant. So when did that change for you? I, I like to tell people it's my husband's fault because when we were dating, he I, I gave him a warning when we went to my parents' house. I was like, the food is going to be weird. It's going to be maybe gross to you and you might want to come fed, you know, especially given the fact that we work with food in restaurants. I mean, that's our entire life. Like I, I thought that he would just think that this was so pedestrian and simple if not weird and that's the same spiel i'd give anybody i was just always very embarrassed of the food and he ended up walking away from that meal being totally floored by it both by the food on the table but also the style of eating and the rhythm of eating and drinking and the toasting and everything all is one package he just was totally obsessed with it and it totally blew me away that he thought that and it kind of began to erode this like long-held belief that I had that this food was broken and wrong. And, you know, I trusted him about food implicitly. And I now see it through his eyes, um, thankfully, as something really beautiful and meant to cherish and that might be lost if we don't do something about it. Um, and that trumped any sort of feeling that owning a restaurant is a bad idea. Like we, that was so important to do that we had this like mission that we wanted to do it, even though it meant doing something really stupid. <laughs> <laughs> so then how did it go from, okay, this is a thing we're doing to, okay, this is a thing where people can come in and order food. I have selective memory around that entire period of time. <laughs> I mean, we we wrote a business plan. We um, There was an investor at the restaurant that my husband was a general manager at at the time who we thought would be a good person to use as a guinea pig. They were like, oh, we're going to pitch this to him and see how it goes so that we can like further hone what we're doing. And to our surprise, this person ended up totally loving what we were suggesting and turns out that he had um, studied in St. Petersburg when he was in college and so he had like some intimate knowledge of the food and knew what we were talking about and how great it is and so he actually ended up um, being our investor which we I feel like we were really lucky to not have to um, be stuck at that stage of uh, raising funds for too long um, and then it was off to the races we found a space we hired people, <laughs> you know, we bought equipment and all of it was just flying by the seat of our pants because we had never done that before. I mean, we'd been in management for other people in places, but uh, honestly nothing as uh, small as what we were doing. We just, yeah, we were just figuring it out as we were going. You don't realize this till you're in it, that the difference between working for a company that does a thing and owning the company that does the thing. 100%. <laughs> you know, my husband often tells this to people. When you work for somebody else, you're basically, it's like you're wasting their money to learn. And so you should take 
full advantage of that, that like you have this amazing opportunity to like figure it all out on somebody else's dime. And I don't think that like that a lot of people see it as that sort of an opportunity. And like, it's true. Like you have like as a manager at, at somebody else's place, you can pretend that it's your place. You should, you should be pretending that you own it. And what would you do if you owned it? I'm wondering if you can kind of set the tone of like somebody walks into the restaurant, like what's kind of the vibe that they get? What, what, what are they hearing? What are they smelling? What are they seeing? My goal that uh, they experience is the, the feeling that they've just walked into the middle of some huge dinner party at some grandma's house that it's boisterous and lively and people are singing and there's toasting and that's like the feeling that we want to get as close to as possible while being in a restaurant and we try to achieve that in a few different ways one is the music that we play is really important to us i like ransacked my dad's record collection and like cds of russian artists and soviet artists from like mid 20th century so there's a lot of that and mixed up equally with sort of Russian pop from the 90s, which very much feels like the 80s. It's like meant to feel like my childhood and my parents like young adult life. Um, so that's really important. The tables are closely spaced together in a way that makes it feel like out of the corner of your eye that it's actually one long dinner party table. So that's intentional. And sometimes guests do like, you know, get involved with each other's tables, like they'll have strike up conversations or like toast each other. And I love seeing that I wanted to feel like it was like my parents first apartment together or something kind of like this like 70s era Soviet um, like in Minsk or something. So like, I, I remember sitting down with my mom at the wallpaper store and like being like, okay, find the one that reminds you of like the wallpaper that was at your house. There's this like, orange with white polka dot pattern that's um very nostalgic and very specific of like the sort of soviet era like housewares so like people have like mixing bowls or teapots or whatever and this like orange with white polka dot pattern and like for me whenever i see that i like i want it because again it reminds me of these like enamelware bowls that they immigrated with that they used to have in their kitchen when i was a kid growing up so i guess drawing on so much of your childhood memories and creating the restaurant how has that been for you or I guess, how has that affected you? I feel like the restaurant for me is like an ongoing therapy session because I was born in the US to a family that entirely everyone my generation and older are all from the Soviet Union. And so they have a shared experience, whether it be good or bad, because I mean, it was a hard place to be. They left as refugees, but they have a shared experience there that I know nothing about. When I think back on it as to like why I really wanted to do this and, and what I continue to do in operating Kachka, it's just like try to connect with that part of my family and my culture. And so I love all of the things that make me feel like I'm eight again. And that's a decor wise what I'm always trying to do. Nice. Can you talk then about the food? Like you talked a little bit about how your your mind kind of 180'd on the food, but can you tell us a bit about the, the food that you serve and, and what that means to you and what that means to share that with people who probably don't have that same experience as your family, right? So there's, I would say, a few different methods that I go through or thoughts that go through my mind when I'm putting dishes on the menu. And Sometimes it's dishes that are just straight up nostalgic. Like this is literally how my mom does it. I'm not gonna mess with it. I'm not gonna touch it. And um, then there's 
everything from that to sort of the other side of the equation, which is like things that I feel like I have a lot to say about that I want to either inflect local ingredients on. So maybe it's like, you know, something that normally would have uh, an ingredient local to um, Belarus, let's say. And I, there's like a sort of equivalent to that that's here in the Northwest that I want to use instead. So I might like work with that. And so it's like changes it a little bit. So it's like, there's a lot, there's a wide range. I'm careful to make sure that, that my reason for putting it on the menu is that it's like true to who I am. You know, like a, I think that in restaurants in general, we get into this whole thing of authenticity a lot and how really dangerous that can be because who's to say that any dish is authentic to any place because it's all manipulated by people and people move and change and the ingredients they work with moves and changes and you can't pinpoint anything to really be authentic. This is my interpretation of dishes from this part of the world through my like daughter of immigrants lens. So it's like totally varied. Yeah. I think that's what makes food interesting though. So do you have a favorite dish from your childhood that made its way onto the menu? The dish that probably evokes the strongest um, memory for me um, is something called galopce or um, they're called cabbage rolls if you say it in english you know that's a once a week sort of a meal and when i was growing up and so we've had that dish on our menu ever since day one because it's so important to me and what i think is really beautiful about that in particular is that something totally unintended in opening the restaurant is finding out that other people connect with a certain dish the same way that you do. And so what's happened actually with alarming frequency is people tasting that dish at our restaurant and also being brought to tears because it reminds them of their like loved one, like, or like we have um, a regular that used to come in. She's um, from Belarus and she was homesick and she would come in and eat that dish and just like think about her family that she missed. Um, or like we had somebody who came in once and tasted that dish and started crying because it reminded them of their grandmother who used to cook for that, that for them all the time. And their, her mother never like carried on the same cooking traditions. And so when her grandmother passed away, that dish left her like memories, like her, her repertoire. And when she tasted that, she like, it was like a ratatouille moment. You know, like she like went right back to that time when she was in her grandmother's kitchen. And I just had no idea that I could connect to other people with food in that way. For me, you asked me about like dishes that were important to me personally, but actually what makes that dish special is how it also was special for others and that we could connect to it. We often, we talk, I mean, especially right now, like with what's going on with Ukraine and Russia, you want to do something. Like we're always like, how can, how can I do anything? And all I know to do is cook, but like, that actually to me is like probably one of the most important things you can do is to like connect people to each other to their heritage to remind us all that we're human and like this that like food has this like amazing power over all of us yeah it's a it's a way to connect it doesn't matter what culture it is it's a way to connect yeah hey i wanted to pause for a quick break if you're enjoying this season of call paul you'll love a small business story from our friends at Courier, 
a magazine about working better and living smarter. The ability to overcome obstacles was a skill that Bassa and Mikhail Moem learned at an early age. The French brothers, known as Les Frères Moem, are now poster boys of the climbing world and ambassadors for French climbing, winning awards one minute and overseeing a burgeoning business empire the next. But it wasn't always like this. Before, life was more of an uphill struggle. For the full story, head to couriermedia.com. And if you want more stories like this, you can sign up for their weekly newsletter at couriermedia.com slash email. I want to talk a bit about the restaurant industry uh, because there's a lot of things that your restaurant does that is not the norm, <laughs> right? And so I guess I, I want to start with I guess, what have you seen in the restaurant industry that has propagated the system of inequality or racism and discrimination that it seems like you're actively trying to, I guess, work against or make better in some way in the restaurant that you run? That's a loaded question in that. Yeah, it's a big question. (laughs) Yeah, that's huge, right? We could spend hours just on that. But there's two main things. One is inequality between uh, what are called front of house workers and back of house workers. And that's, you know, for people who don't know, back of house means generally kitchen folk and front of house is generally speaking servers and bartenders. There has for a very, very long time now been a huge disparity between the pay of a front of house worker and a back of house worker. You know, pre-pandemic, I would say you were talking about 15 to $17 an hour for a kitchen worker. And um, with tips, if you break it down by hour, around $60 an hour for a front of house employee. Um, That is a major difference. So because of that, it creates an economic divide where you have front of house workers that have mortgages and marriages and babies and back of house workers that are barely able to make their rent. They cannot even afford to live in the city in which they are cooking in. Um, that's a major difference. Um, and as a result, there's a lot of, you know, um, racial divides there. You tend to see a lot more immigrants or in a lot of situations, illegal workers, um, in kitchens. And you see oftentimes in front of house, very polished, you know, college graduates or folks that are, you know, subsidizing their hobbies or passions by waiting tables. They can do that because they make such a huge amount of money in such a short amount of time that they can spend, you know, 20 hours a week waiting tables and then, you know, spend the rest of their time either, you know, just traveling or doing other things, or they can, you know, commit to like maybe something that uh, takes a little bit of time to start up, like an artist's portfolio or an acting career, right? So there's a lot more leisure there. So that's a huge difference and a huge problem that's always been going on. And as a result, you'll also see a lot of abuse historically in restaurant settings, especially with kitchen workers. I think there's a sense that kitchen workers are disposable and that you can kind of treat them however you want. So it's it's a It's a tale of two different lives that is really, really discouraging. So then how does tipping play into this? Historically, tipping is something that became popular in the U.S. as a way to keep um, newly freed slaves um, at uh, a lower wage level, basically creating a lower minimum wage 
and then suggesting that, you know, that the rest of the money that they make be made up in tips. In Oregon, we don't have this, but in most states in the U.S., they still continue to have a lower minimum wage for tipped workers. And in some places, that's like $3 an hour, $2 an hour. And that is because they use it, it comes from saying, oh, well, you know, uh, these former slaves are a second class and they don't need to make as much money. And if they work hard enough, somebody might tip them enough to make a little bit extra. So those tips are not something that you can choose to live without, yet they are dangled or withheld by the diners as if it was something extra, as if it's something that you need to beg and plead and dance for. And that creates a situation of desperation. If you really need that money, if you need that money to make your rent, but somebody might smack your ass on your way by their table, you might not say anything about it. In fact, you might encourage it a little bit more because I, you got to make your rent. So it's very complicated because on one hand, you know, I'm telling you, oh, these front of house workers can make so much money more than the kitchen. And that is true, but they also have to put up with absolutely unacceptable situations. I, um, I recently sat on a, a meeting with the Department of Labor and I heard servers tell stories during the pandemic from their own experiences of being asked to lower their masks so that somebody can take a look at what they look like before they tip them. So, I mean, this isn't even something that happened once upon a time. This is happening literally right now as we are talking. And so to me, in thinking about these issues with the disparities between the front and back of house and just the just insulting conditions of so many front of house workers, it just makes me feel like the root of all of it is our society's obsession to tip and how we have to divorce from that. Yeah, I mean, as somebody who's not in that business, like I didn't know any of that stuff, right? Like I think a lot of diners wouldn't know that. But this is huge. <laughs> like before we get into how you specifically take it on, like how do you figure out that like, okay, this is like we need to take this on. I've been in the restaurant industry for, you know, over 20 years now. And for the large majority of that, I've just been like witness to this and just sort of shrugging my shoulders and saying, well, that just comes with the territory. And I think that that is where most people fall is they just, they, I, you will you cannot talk to almost any hospitality employee and then not agree with you that this is a problem but no one wants to tackle it um, because it feels so ingrained. My husband and I have been talking about this for years. I mean, ever since we opened the restaurant. So it's been almost eight years now, we've been talking about this. And every single time we would talk about it, we would always come up to the spot in our conversation where you would say, yeah, but guests would be so pissed and they'd leave you one star reviews and then you wouldn't, you would be screwed. Like you can't, you just can't do it. Um, that's like one of the major tenants for why you can't like you just can't do it the summer of 2020 instead of reopening our restaurant which we didn't feel was safe to do we did this like pop-up version of our restaurant it was like everything on paper plates ordering off your phone people just like come scurry to your table drop off a tray and run away but our kitchen was like 80 yards from this parking lot and up the stairs right and so we realized that the actual challenge 
for employees in executing this restaurant wasn't having perfect table service. It was like literally running a marathon every night. And so how can you offer people enough money for that sort of highly intense cardio work? And so we did an auto gratuity that summer and we were like, oh man, people are gonna be so pissed. And you know, we did every once in a while get a bad review that was like, I had to bust my own plates and I had to pay 20% tip, one star. Um, that those do happen, but what we were surprised by was just how infrequent they were. And that was our first sort of like, huh, something, either something has changed maybe, or maybe we had been making this assumption all along that was unwarranted. And so that was a big important thing that allowed us to really uh, look at this in earnest. And then now you have that, like there's still a, a no tips policy. Yeah. That sort of pop-up experiment made us realize that maybe we could allow for a service fee instead of um, allowing people to tip as they might want. By deciding what that amount is and making it fixed, there is no longer any connection between how I perform for a table and how much pay I'm taking home. Um, And I think that what's really interesting about that is in any other business if i were to tell you that how you perform at your job will affect how much you take home that day you would be floored you'd be like what are you talking about i make an hourly rate i make a salary whatever it is i might have a bad day i might have a good day but i make the same right but meanwhile guests of restaurants say well i of course i should have the ability to to tip you a different amount just because you know like what if you don't do such a good job at my table it's just an interesting thing to hear that and you're like well i don't go into your job and tell you that you're going to make less today yeah um just because maybe you didn't you know you didn't get up on the right foot moving to a service fee model instead of allowing for tipping gets rid of that equation and it makes it feel a little bit more like a profession and something that you know you can plan on you know i'm gonna i'm gonna make the same amount in december as i'm gonna make in july and be able to depend on that because of that we are now able to pay kitchen employees um similar wages to front house employees it's interesting being an outsider from that industry because it challenges a bunch of these things that you just held as like, this is just how things work. I guess, is there then pushback from front of house employees because they make less? That one's a little bit more complex. Yes. For folks that were working at Kochka prior to the start of this, compared to now, they are making less money. And we do have some folks that have left because of that. But we do have folks that are sticking around because they think that this is the right thing to do and that they are 100% on board with it. There are lots of facets to why somebody works at any one place and what makes up their enjoyment there. And, you know, yes, hour for hour uh, pay is lower than it used to be, but for somebody else, it might be higher than where they were before. Um, or maybe for them, health insurance is incredibly important. And with us offering free health insurance, that's the thing that they need more than anything. And there's also the community that we create. But I think my takeaway is it has been refreshingly less challenging than we thought it was going to be. Nice. And I mean, I think that that's part of running a business that we talked about in the beginning, how 
um, you need to try things and test things out and yeah <laughs> then you can then you can actually see if something's going to work or not yeah i mean there's like all these rules that you make up about how things are supposed to be in any industry and you feel like at least i did as a new business owner and not and even not that new of a business owner i mean it's been eight years now that like you're like oh well this is just the way that it is and you know i think the one one of those silver linings of the pandemic is that it gave you a little bit more like chutzpah to question those foundational pieces i've noticed this in the the businesses that i've started as well is that there's some degree of world building when when you're building a, a business regardless of what it is where if you do it um if you do it in an authentic way it feels like you're kind of you're making the world that you want to see and you're changing things in a way that you think could be for the better and it is obviously like well like we both said an experiment when you're trying like do you see yourself as a gate crasher to to this industry i don't see it as crashing it's not this like big crazy like loud it's just it's more like going around the gate we just decided that you know what this isn't working and something has to change and we can just we can rewrite it and like forget about the gate maybe you can just go through the window yeah do you see other restaurants kind of looking to the way you're doing things and being like oh i guess we can do this too or does it still feel kind of i guess lonely in that you're challenging long-held beliefs a lot of places did reach out to us when news broke of what we were doing and wanting to find out more and that was really nice to see but I think that a lot of people are still just really too scared to, to make any major moves because they feel like, well, I just made it through this pandemic and like, I don't want to rock any boats. I mean, in Portland, at least, I will say that like, we're not alone in what we're doing. There are a good handful of places that are doing either the same thing we're doing or similar things. I guess I'm really anxious to see more change because I just feel so strongly about how like, what you i mean what you were saying before you're not in the restaurant industry you had no idea about some of these things and i just feel like so anxious about the fact that so many folks just have no idea and i think the restaurant industry has done an unfortunately amazingly good job of sweeping all of this under the rug and i wish that uh, more diners would be asking their local restaurants to do something like this i think in order to see a major sea change and give restaurateurs the confidence to make these sorts of shifts, we need to see diners asking for it. And that's what I think is going to yield the greatest success. Do you then work backwards from, okay, this is the thing that I want to, like, I'm just trying to work out the the steps. Like, do you see, okay, this is a, this is a system of inequality that I, I no longer want to be part of. And then work backwards to, well, I also need to run a business and I can't be sustainable unless i'm profitable like do you do you figure out the the thing that needs to change and then work that into the the like nuts and bolts of of like profit and margins and that like you pointed out it is a business we do have to be profitable i have to be able to pay my bills um and so for us the way that 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 we felt like we could do all of this at the same time involve profit sharing when you tell um a group of restaurant employees that I, the big bad restaurant owner, am now going to take all the money that should have been going to you. And now I'm going to take it away from you 
and pay you an hourly rate, the inclination is to assume that I'm doing something devious with it, um, unfortunately, because I mean, there are a lot of bad actors out there. And so in thinking through all of the steps and the things that we wanted to do, that was not lost on us. And we knew that in order for employees to feel like they could trust us, that we would have to prove their trust. And so the way to do that would be to show them the money. And so we felt like, okay, well, if the restaurant profits exorbitantly from this change, then everybody will profit from it. And we also will show all of our numbers. So in tandem with moving to this model, we also instituted uh, profit sharing where every six months we will go through our P&Ls with all of our staff, show them all the nuts and bolts, all the, I mean, mostly it's showing them how much insurance costs, all those fun things that no one gets to see usually. And then being able to see what actually was profited. And so we could then distribute that because again, if we've benefited, if the business has thrived because of this very risky, very different model, then everyone should be able to benefit from it so that there is no sense that anyone's being exploited because that is certainly not the intention, was not the intention in doing this. So we wanted to make sure that that was clear and that we were showing that in our actions, not just in our words. I'm curious about kind of what's next for the restaurant, but what's next as far as how you want to challenge the paradigm of hospitality as well. The next goal for us is to make sure that, I mean, we have sick pay, but we want to be able to make sure to extend um, general pay time off to all employees, not just management. That's a really big one for us. Another one is having like family leave funds. Thankfully, we've seen lots of babies come through the restaurant, but I, you know, I always wish that we could do more to support folks that are on maternity and paternity leave. So that's a really important goal for me. Again, it's such a funny thing because in so many industries, you'd be like, well, yeah, of course, that's normal, right? We used to pay 50% of the premium, which is pretty normal. And in January, we started paying for 100% of the premiums. But let me just say, Paul, that in most restaurants, there is zero health insurance provided of any sort whatsoever. So we're talking about middle ages for most restaurants as far as benefits go and i just want to see the industry be be taken seriously and for it to take itself seriously and so that's ultimately the goal is to find ways to create opportunity that's meaningful and to have people be able to like hang their head high because they're they're working in a restaurant rather than it be this thing that you're doing to pay your bills while you're gonna do your real job you know Yeah, it feels like you're world building here. You're building the way that things should work. So I guess I'm curious if anything has changed specifically in regards to success. Like, what did you think success looked like in the start versus what do you feel like success looks like now for the restaurant? Mm. That's a really good question. I think I think in restaurants, success is always tied to like public, how many publications are you in? Like who's like best of lists are you on? Like, did you make best new chef? Um, And so I think that going into this, I thought that that is what success would look like. And, you know, we've been fortunate to have a lot of those accolades and that didn't feel very successful. I mean, it it doesn't actually make me feel good at the end of the day. The thing that makes me feel good at the end of the day is being able to take care of the people that work for us. You know, like a restaurant is only as good as the employees that work there. It takes a huge team 
Um, and it's not something you can really automate and, or that you should automate. It, it, it is, high, it is a very human industry. And I just, I feel like success to me is having employees that are taken care of and that feel good about where they work. And I feel like when I was, when we were starting our restaurant, um, that was like literally the last thing we thought about, you know, you think about the food, you think about the vibe, you think about the prices and all of that, but you're like, oh yeah, I will hire people, you know, but you don't really think about what that means and that how, how much responsibility you bear. I remember the very first payroll we had to run and feeling this like total insane, like dread. Cause you're like, do we even have that money? What happens if we can't pay them? And so it totally changes the way you think about your business. And it becomes more about taking care, for me at least, it becomes more about taking care of those people. And like, you are responsible for them. It's like having 30 children. That's what it feels like. So I guess then happy employees are definitely part of it. But then is there a way that you measure or quantify that success? Yeah, I mean, retention, I suppose it would, you know, some, some Harvard grad would tell you, maybe everybody gets these sorts of things. But I feel like pretty often, we get an employee telling us that like, this is the best place they've ever worked. And, or like, you know, even somebody on their exit, like they're moving, or they're just, it's just ready to, they're just ready to go to another job or whatever. And, you know, when you get people who leave and in their exit, they're like, this will always be the best place I've ever worked. That sort of stuff is the most gratifying and the thing that I'm thankful to hear. But, you know, I would never want to assume, like, I don't, I think it would be really dangerous for me to be like, oh yeah, all my employees are so happy. I'm doing such a great job. Just because that's my intention doesn't mean I'm always delivering on that. And so I think we're really humble about that and try to make sure we're always like checking in and, and actually getting that feedback. So I hope, I hope that's what we're doing. Bonnie's full and absolute commitment to thinking through her actions as a business owner, how they affect her staff, her customers, and even herself, sets her and Kochka apart. As if running a business isn't difficult enough, when you add in working to change an entire industry by being an example of how things could be, not just doing what everybody else does, there's this level of dedication to wanting to do something right and better for everyone that is really admirable. What if this happened in every industry? Or what if it just happened in your own? What if supposed known truths were taken down to the core ingredients and reimagined in a way that's just more equitable and enjoyable to everyone involved? Too often, disruption means a big tech company turning anything and everything into a mobile app. For me, though, Bonnie is a real example of what actual industry disruption can be. Most of us work for ourselves because we want to make and set our own rules and values to live by. So if we can't question the fundamentals around how things work in the first place, how can we ever ensure the rules we're following are our own? Next week, I'm chatting with a business owner who decided to make clothes for bodies, not genders. I hope you'll join us. Call Paul is a MailChimp original podcast. The show is made possible with the help of the whole amazing team, 
Julie Douglas, Ruth Eddy, Sasha Brown, Tierra Darnell, Kaida Jesus, and Zoe Culkin. Subscribe now on your favorite podcast player so you can check out all of our other episodes and seasons. Oh, and if you want more awesome podcasts, go to MailChimp.com slash presents.